Well, let's turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> the beginning chapter of 1 Peter, uh, as we learned, is written for people experiencing great trials in their lives. And uh, they were enduring terrible suffering. And Peter writes to them uh, to encourage and strengthen them in their troubles. And what a great ministry it is, actually, to come alongside of Christians who are suffering, who are hurting, and to be one uh, to encourage them in their walk with God. And that's what Peter is doing uh, in this chapter, and it's a good ministry for all of us to, to, you know, God comforts us in our sorrow, and he expects us not to just be comfortable uh, from his comfort, but to be comforters to uh, others who are going through something similar to us. Believers in the first century were going through tough times, and uh, maybe you are too. You may be facing all kinds of trials in your life, trials that tax you physically, emotionally, um, mentally, spiritually. And if you are facing tough times in your life, then this letter is for you. This chapter in particular is for you. For the believer, trials are inevitable. We are all grieved, and Peter says, by various trials. We suffer trials of physical pain, mental anguish, sadness, sorrow, unfulfilled expectations, anxiety, fear, turmoil, bereavement. All of these things uh, come into our lives. Troubles come through disease, uh, as our bodies decay, and we face aches and pains and problems. Some of you, some of us, will face uh, financial troubles. Just look at your latest PG&E bill. <laughs> the cost of living, the, house, uh, the price of housing, the increase in mortgage rates, the massive tech layoffs, that have rolled out each week over the last month. Others deal uh, with problems in their own families, with uh, dysfunctional family members and evil people at work or in their neighborhoods. In our extended family, I was thinking about this this week, that if I look at my extended family, some members have suffered bankruptcy, cancer, armed robbery, burglary, house fires, water damage, property theft, identity theft, broken promises, failed business ventures, injustice in courts. Some have endured accidents, breakdowns, broken contracts, infections, sickness, broken limbs. Some have been laughed at, persecuted, mocked at, spit upon, had their beards yanked, and endured physically and mentally for their faith in Christ. Wow. That's a list, and that's just one extended family. Trials are inevitable, and especially for Christians. The Bible tells us no temptation or no testing uh, has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And I want to say this to you up front. 
God is not the author of evil. Sometimes we say, we think wrongly that, oh, I'm suffering this trial in my life. God must be disappointed with me. God must be against me. And we often go down that path of thinking, and it's not right. God is not the author of evil. The Bible tells us that every perfect gift, every good gift, and every perfect gift comes from the Father, in whom there is no shifting shadow. So if we are facing trials that are outside of ourselves, that are coming our way, and it's not because of disobedience where we're being disciplined by the Lord, if we face trials like this, then we know the source, don't we? The Bible says that um, God is not the author of evil. Satan is. And so the Lord tells us in uh, the Sermon on the Mount that we are to continuously pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. We are, we are as believers, we are up against spirit. Uh, Spiritual, a spiritual battle, and the evil one is the source of uh, the evil that we face. But the Bible also says that we need to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. And so I want to encourage you today, and I'm going to say this over and over again this morning, that uh, dear fellow believers, we must take a stand on the promises of God. We must take a stand on the promises of God. Stand your ground. Stand on the promises of God. Stand your ground on God's promises that we just read. It says God is faithful. It says he will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. He will provide a way of escape. That's a promise so that you may be able to endure whatever temptation or whatever testing, whatever trial comes your way. Stand on the promise of God. Now, as we read the Bible today, we're going to see what God says to us through his word. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting with verse 13. So let me just read the section, and then we're going to look at it verse by verse. First uh, Peter 1, 13. Therefore... Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct." Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory 
so that your faith and hope are in God. How do you respond to trials? For many people, trials come their way and immediately they become sad and discouraged and afraid. And yet, we read in James that that's not how we are to respond. We are to respond to trials, believe it or not, with joy. Count, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Listen, you are going to face trials. That's absolutely a guarantee. You're going to face trials. Face them with joy. Why should you be joyful in trials? It's because of what James says here, that God is clearly at work in your life. This is actually evidence that you're his child and that he is working in your life and he is developing Christ-likeness in your character. He wants you to be more like, God wants you to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. And so if it takes a trial to produce Christ-likeness, count it all joy. At the end of the day, you'll be more like Christ. And he is developing Christ-like character in you. Remember that he is not the author of evil, but God can harness even evil, even trials in your life to produce the good effect of being Christ-like um, through the trials. Stand your ground on this truth. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He only gives good gifts to us. And so if you're facing something that is not good, you know the source is not from God. Stand on this promise uh, that we see in Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so as I said, God is able to harness even the trials in our life and cause them all to work together for good because he is good and he does good. So rejoice that God is working out his perfect character building plan in your life, even if it means that you face trials uh, along the way. James says, count it all joy. Peter said, we read this last week, greatly rejoice in your trial. Suppose you're in a trial right now. Well, that's great. Ask God for wisdom to understand why you're in the trial or what he's trying to accomplish so that you can cooperate through the trial, but he is doing something in your life to make you more Christ-like. What happens when you face a trial? Some people fret. Some people are filled with fear. Some people become hysterical. And others just roll up in a fetal position and cry and cry and cry. I remember 
visiting um, the psych ward at Eden Hospital some years ago as I was meeting with a patient there. And um, I was allowed to sit at the dinner table when they served dinner to the patients of that floor. And um, as I sat at the dinner table, I had opportunity to speak to the people across from me at the table. And I met a woman who was a manager of a large local hardware store. And as the conversation continued, I asked her if she was visiting a patient there in the ward. And she said, no, I am the patient. And I was shocked because she seemed completely normal. And uh, I said, are you okay? And she said, no. She said, I'm going to have a breakdown tonight. And I'd never heard of somebody who knew in advance they were going to have a breakdown, but she did. And uh, so I stayed. We had finished dinner. I finished my visit on the floor. And um, as I was about to leave, you had to sign out at a desk that you were leaving because it's a locked door and you have to leave through the locked door to make sure you're gone. But as I walked down the hall towards the front desk, um, I saw way down at the end of the hallway um, a person in a fetal position on the ground in the hallway covered with a blanket just shaking and sobbing and sobbing. And so when I went to the desk, I said to the nursing staff, I said, do you know what's going on down at the end of the hallway? And they said, oh yeah, that's you know, so-and-so. And uh, that was the name of the lady that I had talked to at the dinner table. And uh, she'll be okay in a few hours. This woman could feel herself build up fear and anxiety to the point where she would literally fall to the floor sobbing and shaking. And that's how she handled trials. But she's not alone. Lou, go ahead and uh, do the video. Scared of her own shadow. You've seen that. You see, what was there to be afraid of? Absolutely nothing. Really, there was nothing to be afraid of, but she didn't know that. When we face trials in our life, really, there is absolutely nothing to be afraid of. God is in control. God has not abandoned you. God has not forgotten you. Don't be afraid when you come into various trials. And this is why Peter says here in 1 Peter 1.13, therefore, because we've just been talking about trials in the first part of this chapter, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A girdle, I, I, I don't wear one, but what I understand is that a girdle is um, a garment that encircles the body, usually around the middle section, to hold in anything that just isn't quite firm, maybe a little bit fatty or flabby, 
and uh, it just, you know, tightens everything up, right? And so that's what, when he says gird up the loins, it's, he's talking about like a girdle, something that wraps up uh, something against the body, usually at the waist. And it's, you know, flabby, fat skin from showing through the outer garment. It's meant to keep the flab under control. And sometimes when we face trials, we are like that little girl who is afraid of her own shadow, and our mind is filled with flabby thinking. We are not thinking straight. And Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Put a girdle on your thinking, and don't let flabby thinking dominate your mind. Then he says, be sober. When a person is drunk, they don't think straight, do they? They are intoxicated with alcohol. Something else is controlling them, and often they lose all inhibitions and do things that they would not otherwise do in sober moments. Stop your flabby thinking. Think sober thoughts about God and what God says in His Word. In other words, take a stand on the promises of God. Finally, he says, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he saying here? Jesus is coming again. That is a promise from God. That's what Peter means here when he uses the phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes in all his glory, he will show himself victorious over sin, death, hell, the devil, fallen angels, and all manner of people who have troubled you in your Christian life. You can take a stand on that truth from the Bible. Take a stand. Don't have flabby thinking when it comes to trials. And even if you suffer trials the rest of your life, Jesus is coming again. And he will sort out all of this mess in your life. On that day, your troubles will be over. And you will be forever free from the power of sin and from the presence of sin. Rest your hope in that glorious truth. Jesus is coming again. And by his grace, he will free you from everything that troubles you now. The giant warrior, Goliath, troubled the Israeli army for 40 days and 40 nights. Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, 16. Saying, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. And he basically said, if he wins against me, we'll be your slaves. But if I win against you, him, then you will be my slave or our slaves. And the, the, it freaked out the, the entire Israeli army when he came out day after day. And it says, Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The entire army was sidelined by one man and his message to them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. But David, David did not have flabby thinking, did he? He was sober in his thoughts. He uh, girded up the loins of his mind and he said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies 
of the living God. David told Saul, Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and delivered me from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And you know the rest of the story. God used David to, to defeat Goliath with a single stone from his sling. Some people say, yeah, but he picked up five. Was he afraid he was going to miss? No. Goliath had brothers, and he, I'm sure that he thought of that. He's got other brothers, and if they come after me, I've got stones to, to kill them too. The point is that we as believers can stand on the promises of God. Do you think God tells us these stories in the Old Testament just to entertain us? No, to encourage us to have the same faith as David and uh, others in the Old Testament who had faith in God's word. David says in Psalm 25, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Over and over again, David trusted in the Lord through his trials. He said, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. David said, I have been young and am now old, and I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. David was sober in his thinking, and he said this, by my God, I shall run through a troop. By my God, I shall leap over a wall. Here was a man of faith who, who centered his faith standing on the promises of God. You'll remember the story of the 12 men who spied out the promised land on behalf of the nation of Israel. They sent them into the promised land, spy it out, see what, what the territory is like. God promised Israel he was giving them the land. But they spied it out. And the 12 spies all saw the same land. They all saw the same crops. They all saw the same cities pre-built. They saw the fruit trees. They saw the grapevines. They saw it all. And all 12 of them came back safely to the nation of Israel. And did they stand on the promises of God? Ten spies had flabby thinking. Ten spies should have gone out with a girdle on their mind. Ten spies were terrified and their fear spread to the entire nation. They were panic-stricken, saying, the land truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And if you remember, two men were carrying a, post, a pole between them on their shoulders with a cutting from a grapevine, all the grapes dangling from it. That's a huge uh, grape cluster. And they saw it, they brought it with them. This is the fruit. Nevertheless, they said, this is where the fear struck them. The people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak, Anak being the giants, are there. And, are, and we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. When Peter says, gird up your minds, he is saying, don't be like the ten spies. Don't be like the ten spies. 
Two of the spies, named Joshua and Caleb, girded up the loins of their minds. They were sober in their estimate of the situation, and they said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. The flabby thinking of the ten spies caused an entire nation to perish in the wilderness. That whole generation perished. But after 40 years, God rewarded two men, Joshua and Caleb, and they both went into the promised land. They both saw victory. And even at, eight, I think it was, he was 80 years old, when uh, Caleb said to Joshua, Joshua saying, well, what territory do you want? He says, give me that mountain or I die. I mean, this is a man of faith. Give me that mountain or I die. Probably one of the hardest areas to conquer at 80 years old. And he had faith that God would grant that to him. And it was granted to him. Sober in their thinking. God can do the same for you that he did for David versus Goliath. God can do the same for you. The things that God did for Israel ultimately against the Canaanites. If a mountain stands in the way between you and accomplishing the purposes of God, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is nothing, it will be done. Faith in the Lord. Stand on the promises of God. If you get nothing else out of this sermon today, just remember to stand firm on the promises of God. Jesus told the disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee one day. He needed to get to the other side. On the way, Jesus fell asleep. And then a great storm came, and it was so severe that even seasoned fishermen were panicking. And as a last resort, they awoke Jesus and said, Master, do you not care that we perish? Now stop and think about this. Jesus needed to get to the other side. Do you think he was not going to get to the other side? He told them to get in the boat and go to the other side. That was his will. He was with them in the boat. He is God and God controls the weather and all of other life circumstances. Were they really going to perish? I think not. And yet they let their minds run wild with hysteria, so they even question God. God, do you not care? In the midst of a trial, do you ever have that thought? God, do you have you forgotten me? God, do you not care? Don't you see what's going on? Hello? Yes, I do. Girding up the minds means that we don't freak out in the circumstances of life. We don't question the character, the love, the care of the Lord for us, even in the midst of a trial. On several occasions in life's journey, Krista and I have been sideswiped by trials that sent us spinning, and it, and it did seem like life was out of control. But during those trials, we were driven to our knees and driven to this book. And in this book, we found the satisfaction that we needed in the promises of God. And very often, we would have an open Bible in, our, in front of us <laughs> with tears streaming down our face saying, 
Lord, you promised. You promised. We trust you. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober in your thinking. Get into this book and stand on the promises of God. If Job is the most severe case of suffering that comes to mind, listen to what James says. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Even in such a severe trial, God's purpose was to be both compassionate and merciful to Job. Don't lose sight of who the Lord is. Don't lose sight of what he has already done for you. Gird up the loins of your mind. Pull up the loose ends of your mind and bring, it un, uh, bring under control every wild thought that would lead you astray. Be sober in your thinking and stand on the promises of God. 1 Peter 1.13, And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, hope always has to do with the certainty of future events. And this is the, our hope. Jesus is coming again. First at the rapture to take us home with him. And then again, um, when he comes to the earth to defeat his enemies and set up his kingdom on the earth. And he will then be recognized as king of kings and lord of lords. His kingdom will be one of peace. And, and we will reign with him. That's the future that awaits us, dear believers. Do you deserve that? Absolutely not. <laughs> but out of the abundance of his grace, his undeserved favor toward you, you will be with him and you will reign with him. Jesus said it, I will come again. And you can stand on that promise of God. You can rest your hope in that promise. Stop your flabby thinking. Be sober. Remember that it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord, is Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. We can be absolutely certain that Jesus is coming again to take us home to be with him forever. And as the hymn writer wrote, with such a blessed hope in view, we would more holy be. And that's the point that Peter is going to make for the rest of the study. God wants to populate heaven with people just like his son. We are saved from our sin so that we will become like our Lord. God saved us, and he placed us into the family of God, and Peter appeals to us to live as children of God. And so I'm going to look at a few points here. Number one, you are God's child. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a child of God. Therefore, live as obedient children. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Before you knew the Lord, you were actually a slave to sin, and your master was Satan. Whatever he said, you did. 
And you now look back at the unfruitful works of darkness that consumed your life. But here we, it says that you did these things in ignorance. But God saved you at a point in, 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 uh, the in, in time in your life, some point in your life, God brought you to the revelation that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. And you repented of your sin and you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't done so yet, do that today, that you might become a child of God. But God saved you, and when he saves you, you become his child. The Bible says, but as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now that you are a child of God, you are to live as an obedient child. As his child, you want to obey him. Why? Because you love him. He is your father. You are his child. And out of love for him, you want to obey him. Dr. Adrian Rogers wrote, A slave obeys because he has to. An employee obeys because he needs to. He needs that check. But a loving son obeys because he wants to. Obey just because you want to love the Lord and show him your love, uh, the love you have for him. He wants to love because he loves his father and wants to please him. Okay, second, God is your father. If you're a believer, God is your father. And so the, the uh, command here is be holy as he is holy. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. We sang in the opening hymn, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And the angels that surround God's throne say that night and day, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy, and God is your Father and we should take on the family resemblance in our own lives and be holy as he is holy. We should imitate our father and be like him. As I said earlier, God wants to populate heaven with people just like his son. And so as, as he uh, develops us in our Christian growth, we want to shun unholiness, things that are not holy, and to be transformed. The world wants, us to, wants to conform us to its likeness, and it can't stand anyone who is different. The world wants to make you happy apart from God, and it offers you a fine array of products to seduce you from a truly satisfying life. It may allure you um, with sports, for example. The world offers you every kind of sport uh, you could want. You can watch sports 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But maybe it's fashion that appeals to you. If only you were on the cutting edge, cutting edge, then you would be satisfied as the latest fashion play. Maybe it's fame. You want to be the next American idol. Or it could be the enticement for you is possessions or money. Whatever you're after, the world's got it. The only problem is that there's no future in any of those things. Fashion, sports, entertainment, fame, money, they have no value in eternity. 
That's what we lived for before we came to know the Lord, before we were saved. And what profit was there in any of those pursuits? They were leading us to a lost eternity. And so I want you to think about your future. Your future is with the Lord. None of these things matter. But one thing that does matter in eternity is your holiness. We are to be holy in all of our conduct. Why is that so important? Because God is holy. It is our sin that separated us from God in the first place. We became unholy when we disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. But he remained holy. And he sent his holy, perfect son to die on the cross for our unholiness, for our sin. And when we believe the gospel, God declared us righteous. That means he, he, he is calling us holy. He's saying, you are righteous in my sight. That is our standing, that is our standing, our state. We, we need to continually conform our lives to that perfect uh, standing that we have before God. The just one died for the unjust ones. And when we believe the gospel, we are declared righteous. We are holy as far as our standing before God is concerned. And now we need each day to be more and more holy. It's interesting the Bible actually calls believers saints. You are a saint. In God's eyes, you, that's what you are. Now we are to live as saints. You are declared holy. And then he says, now live a holy life. Don't live like the world. Put, a, put aside your former life. Put aside your former sins and live for the Lord. Third, honor your father uh, with a wholesome fear or reverence for God. And if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. The Bible actually teaches us that we should fear God. And that means that we should have a wholesome fear or a reverential trust in God. When I was growing up, um, I, I actually feared displeasing my father. And the reason I feared displeasing him was because he had a very large hand. And uh, he often applied the, sometimes he used an instrument like the board of learning on the seat of understanding. And uh, he would punish me if I did not obey him. And uh, I told him in my adult years, not just a few years ago, actually, we were out driving and I said, Dad, you know, I look back at my life growing up and I think of all the times that you spanked me, all the times that you disciplined me, and I'm kind of upset. He said, really? Yeah, I am. And why would you be upset? And I think he's reaching for his hand at that moment. <laughs> I said, I'm upset that you didn't do it more often because <laughs> I deserved a lot more than I got. But fear of discipline led me to fear or respect my father and his wishes. God does discipline his children. And actually, that's a, if you are disciplined by the Lord because of sin in your life, that's actually a good sign. It's an indication that you really are his child. That's what it says in the scripture. Um, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he 
receives. You know, God has no favorites in his family. You're loved just as much as any other Christian is loved. But if we sin, we can expect to be disciplined, corrected. And that's what a loving father does. And God loves us more than any earthly father ever could. Next, number four, remember how much God loves you. Think about that. Remember how much God loves you. It's a motivation. When you think about how much he loves you, it's a motivation to holy living. God saw you in your sin, wasting away and on your way to an eternity in hell. And he pitied you and chose to send his only son, the son of his love, to redeem your soul. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says this in, in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. If I came into the audience right now and I said, I want all of your jewelry. Can you please give me every piece of jewelry that you have? All of your gold, all of your silver, hand it over. Come on, hand it over. Well, you're not doing it. But if I could collect it all and gather it together and melt it down, and then I could ransack every jewelry store there is in the world, and if I could um, gather together every piece of jewelry that was ever sold, and gather every ounce of gold from all the banks in the world, and if I could take the crowns of every kingdom and the gold stored away in every vault and combine it with all the gold in Fort Knox and all the precious metal in every vein of every mine on earth and offer it all to God as a sacrifice for a single sin, it would not pay the price for one solitary sin. If wealth were the way, all earth could not pay the price to redeem a man's soul. And God knew our dilemma. Our sins separated us from God, and we were running headlong to hell. The Bible teaches that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, no remission. The Old Testament blood sacrifices illustrated this. But the blood of goat, bulls and goats could not take away a single sin either. My blood would have to be shed for my sins. But the Old Testament law also indicated that God would allow a substitutionary sacrifice, a sacrifice in place of the one who did wrong. And that blood sacrifice could be offered and let the, the innocent one could be slain in place of the guilty. The substitute would have to be like me, though, and an animal would not do. There is no bull that is like me. There is no lamb that is like me. It would have to be a holy, sinless, undefiled sacrifice, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without spot, a lamb that is human because I am human. And oh, how precious was that lamb the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 
Jesus is the Lamb of God. And God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us as the Lamb of God in our place. How precious is that Lamb? His blood is of infinite value, and it was shed for you, it was shed for me, it was the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. My brother, my sister, that is the blood that Jesus poured out for you because he loved you, because he wanted you in heaven, because he wanted to make you holy, because he wanted to forgive your sin. And he put away the sins of your former lifestyle and he wants you to live the rest of your life for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Remember the plans. Number five, remember the plans that he has for you in verses 20 and 21. He, it says he was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest or he was made known in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our sin did not take God by surprise. Before you committed your first sin, before you were even conceived, before your parents sinned and their parents before them, before the temptation in the Garden of Eden, before the creation of Adam and Eve, before the first day of creation, Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world to be the sacrifice for your sins. And we know that the gospel is the good news. Jesus died on the cross for you. He was buried, and praise God, he was raised from the dead on the third day, declaring that your sins are paid in full, and God was satisfied with his blood offering for your sins. God raised him from the dead, gave him glory, gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And when you place your faith and hope in God for salvation, He has promised to save you and to keep you for all eternity. Stand with me on this promise of God. And here is the promise of God, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Here is the promise again, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the promise of God. Stand on that promise of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't already know him, and you will be saved. In this passage, he has shown you very clearly what you are worth to him. More precious than gold. All the gold the world has to offer. You are more precious to him than anything else. He gave his life, his own blood to save you. 
Now, by your life, by your holiness, by your conduct, and by your faith, demonstrate to him what you think he is worth to you. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for your precious word and that we can stand on the promises of God, that they are sure and amen. Lord, if any are going through trials today, we pray that you would comfort them and as you have promised, that you would deliver them out of all their fears, out of all of their troubles. We ask for this, Lord. We pray if there are any here who still have not trusted you, Lord, that they would stand on the promise of God that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we pray they would do so today. We ask in Jesus' name.